Welcome back to the Arab Tyrant Manual Podcast. I'm Ahmed Gatnash, and today I'm joined by an old friend, a Sudanese voice who's been educating me on Sudan for many years, and I'm glad to finally introduce him to you. Uh, hello, everybody. Um, I am Anas Abdullah Hajj, and I am from Sudan. In Sudan, protests have spread across the country in recent months, and the government has been totally crippled, unable to do anything about a failing economy or a very angry population. Some have dismissed this as just another Arab Spring protest destined to be crushed and forgotten, but that's incredibly short-sighted. As usual, it's impossible to understand the country without understanding the context. In episode 16, we looked at Mauritania and how it can serve as a crystal ball to predict the rest of the region. Sudan is another of those countries, having had more successful popular uprisings than Egypt, Libya and Tunisia put together. Sudan is a lesson giver on revolutions, and today we're going to be diving deeply into that. So Anas, tell me a bit about Sudan to introduce the country. Sudan used to be the largest country in Africa up until 2011, before uh, the people of South Sudan decided to have their own independence and have their own country. And then Sudan split in two different countries, the northern part, which remained as Sudan, and the southern part, which is now known as South Sudan. One of the very interesting things about Sudan in terms of its geographical location is that it sits right in the middle of the African continent, surrounded by countries from the north that are mainly Arab and Muslim countries, and from the south that are mainly African and Christian countries, which makes Sudan a very unique country. One of the main questions uh, throughout the history of Sudan has always been about identity. Uh, some Sudanese people or thinkers, they say that we are Arabs. Uh, others, they say that we are actually Africans. And other people, they say that it is not about Africanism, it's not about Arabism, but actually we should be proud of our own Sudanism as we can normally choose an infinite number of points to start the story, but to make it simple, we go to the same place we normally start from, which is independence and colonialism. Sudan was a British colony, yes, and then it became independent. Yes, so Sudan became independent in 1956. The history, the political history of Sudan has always been a history of military coups, unfortunately. Since 1956 until today, we had more than 13 military coup attempts. Four of them had been successful so far. So was it a military regime that took over from the British immediately? So when the British left the country in 1956, uh, they left behind a democratic government led by Ismail al-Azhari. Just a few months after the British left the country in July 1956, the government of Ismail al-Azhari collapsed and was replaced democratically by the fairest elected government after the independence, which was led by Abdullah Khalil, who was, you could say, the fairest elected prime minister of Sudan or leader of government in Sudan after independence. Abdullah Khalil remained in power for two years, up until 1958. But in 1958, there were a lot of things going on in Sudan. They were mainly two problems. One of them was with the economic situation, because at that point, Sudan's economy was mainly based on the cotton export. Um, But there were a lot of problems surrounding the prices of cotton in the international market. So that was one issue. And the other issue was obviously the political tension between Abdullah Khalil himself as prime minister and Al-Asari. And then something very interesting happened. Abdullah Khalil got to a point where he knew that he will not be able to carry on governing uh, the country. So it was actually him who instructed the military to carry out the fairest successful military coup in Sudan. So the fairest successful military coup in Sudan took place only two years after the independence, after the British left the country, and it was uh, sort of planned and administered mainly by the person who was democratically elected as the first prime minister of the country. That's amazing. So it was instigated by the civilian authorities. The guy basically yes. requested a coup against himself. Exactly. Basically, as I said, he was already going through a, a 
very difficult time in terms of the economical situation and he was also he was being given very hard time by the opposition parties mainly al-azhari and al-tahid al-muqrati party so he knew that he will uh, lose his control very soon at some point so it was him who basically asked the military to take over basically little did he know that he was starting a cycle which would last at least 60 years actually that is very true because a lot of people up until this day in sudan uh, considering everything that happened since then they still blame him for involving the military into the sudanese politics in the first at that place point. Yes. yes yes there's so many interesting things to mention about this coup first of all it wasn't actually the first coup in the history of sudan even after independence, there was at least one coup that took place in 1957. That was an coup. attempt or a success? was an attempt. And the second thing about this coup is that some people say that Abdullah Khalil sort of, at some point, he was rethinking whether to go ahead with it or not until Al-Azhari, who was still his sort of main political opponent at the time, uh, Al-Azhari went to, to Egypt and held a lot of meetings in, in, uh, with the Egyptian politicians. And, and then publicly criticized the government of Abdullah Khalil from Egypt. So Abdullah Khalil got to a point where he decided that he has to go ahead with it and he gave the green light to the army to take over. Um, interestingly enough, the plan, obviously, again, they claim that the plan was for the army to stay in power for only six months. And, uh, that's, that's always the plan. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> to stay in power for only six months and restore order and to clean the place out and then hand over the power back to the civilians. But obviously that did not happen. So instead of staying for six months, Abud stayed in power for six years until 1964. And he didn't leave willingly, did he? He did not leave willingly. And this brings us to the next time when Sudan proved itself exceptional, which was the first popular, successful popular yeah, uprising. Exactly. And this is a very important in not only in the history of Sudan, but I think in the history of all of the Arab world in the Middle East, actually. Because a lot of people are saying that Sudan is now very late in joining the Arab Spring that has taken place nowadays. But in reality, Sudan started the Arab Spring many decades before any Arab country even thought about doing any, anything like this at all. Maboud was a military leader who was overthrown through a, a popular uprising in 1964, which restored the democratic government back to power in Sudan. But unfortunately, again, that did not last for long. So after we had our first spell of democracy for two years after independence between 56 and 58, uh, after this popular uprising, we had another short spell of democracy between 65 until 69. Again, a group of people decided it was about time to have another military coup, and this time it was led by Jafar Numeri, uh, assisted by officers who belonged to the Communist Party and other officers who were Arab nationalists. So Jafar Numeri is another figure who, a lot of what he did shaped what Sudan would later become. When he came to power in 1969, he was a Marxist-leaning, nationalistic figure. And if I understand correctly, he came to power based on a promise of stability. He was upset at the turbulence of the Sudanese political system. And he argued that, you know, Sudan's never enjoyed a moment of stability. In all this time, we've had democracy. Governments keep falling. It's not working for us. And we need a military leader to see us through this period. Exactly. Obviously, that, these are sort of the reasons that all of them sort of com- used to convince themselves to actually do or carry out all of these military coups. This was also very early. I mean, now you can point to so many military dictators who've said exactly the same thing. Back okay. then, it was quite novel. You're talking about a country which is only 14, 13 years after its independence. Exactly, yes. So Jafar Nemeri came to power in 1969, the same year that Gaddafi came to power in neighboring Libya. And he immediately, you know, he followed the standard playbook. He banned political parties, he abolished the parliament, and he did what military leaders do, right? Yes, in so many ways, that's very accurate. And whilst this was happening and the political system was developing, there were a couple more failed coup attempts, surprise, surprise, in 1970 and 1971. 
And the second one was actually instigated by Marxist sympathizers in the military. So Nimeri had came to power as a very left-leaning officer, and then he wasn't left enough for some people who tried to overthrow him. Exactly. So um, a very famous military coup was uh, led by a military officer called by the name of Hashim al-Ata. And actually it succeeded in taking control over Khartoum for a couple of days, but somehow Nimeri managed to come back and regain control. And obviously he then executed all the leaders of the communist party and he went on ruling Sudan for another 16 years this time. And after he'd lost his support base on the left and his claim to legitimacy through Marxism, he basically shifted rightwards. He became more of a US ally and he also started, I believe, adopting Islamic discourse. Yes, because, um, again, there were a lot of factors, a lot of things going on in the political scene. I'm not sure if we have enough time to go through them. But at some point, Nimeri was sort of under the effect of uh, the leaders of the political Islam in Sudan, uh, mainly people like uh, Dr. Hassan Turabi, who passed away a few years ago, um, to the point that in 1983, Nimeri actually declared that Sudan is going to be ruled through Sharia uh, laws. Nimeri had used Islam um, for his legitimacy through this time, but he had eventually become so hardcore Islamist that even the, the Muslims of Sudan were no longer willing to tolerate it. I mean, with Nimeri, you have to sort of, it's very fascinating to study his whole period because he started in 1609, assisted by communist and Arab nationalist officers and then he had a coup against him by the communist officers and then at some point he uh, sort of changed his views and, and he sided with uh, political Islamists and then he so it's he, he basically he tried everything and at the end of the day a lot of people say that the, the main thing he was trying to do basically is to gain some sort of popular support uh, regardless to whoever was willing to give him that, just for him to be able to stay in power. Basically, so he, he was just cynically exploiting ideologies. Basically, he didn't believe in it. Yeah. But then the coup that came to remove uh, Nimeri in 1985 is so probably was, the most interesting. It was a very interesting coup, uh, or actually, it wasn't a coup per se. This is actually one of the brightest moments of the Sudanese history people were starting to lose patience against the government. And actually, I, I need to highlight this because this is very similar to what is going on nowadays in Sudan. Um, um, at the time, Animeri had a very powerful security forces, very powerful military, very powerful control over everything in the country. But then people started voicing their impatience against him in a very spontaneous way to the point that all of these very organized and very powerful security forces were completely paralyzed and unable to do anything about the popular uprising. I'm here imagining kind of Tahrir Square, January 2011 uh, moment. It was even better than that because it was happening all over the place in almost all over the Sudanese, different Sudanese cities and regions at the same time, without any central coordination, without any single political party claiming to have led all of these people to go out against the government at the same time. And this is 1985, so it's not only before the internet, it's even before satellite TV, Absolutely. before the communications Absolutely. revolution. Absolutely. Obviously, there were a lot of factors that helped that situation to happen, mainly economic factors. So people had a lot of very good reasons to basically start voicing their impatience with, with the government. So throughout the popular uprising, the military chose not to pick a side. So then the military stayed sort of neutral, but it got to a point where the military had to make a decision. And at that time, the leader of the military was a, an officer by the name of Abdurrahman Suhar al And a lot of people say that he was very re reluctant to 
get involved in the whole situation altogether. Uh, but the, the, the situation got to a point where other officers around him, they managed to convince him that he has to actually do something about what was going on. The security forces were sort of started to killing people on the street. So Abdurrahman Suarez Dahab, at some point, he just decided that this is the end of Annemarie, and he declared that uh, the end of uh, Annemarie regime. But then he did one of the most fascinating things in the history of Sudan, and I would say in the history of many African and Arab countries. Probably in the history of the world. Probably in the history of the world, because at that time where military coups were still sort of in fashion and he had all the support of all the officers in the army he had support of uh, large segments of the people and he just managed to overthrow somebody who has already been had already been in power for 16 years so he had every reason he needed to stay in power for probably at, as long as he wanted to but abrahman Dahab was very clear from day one that he's only doing this for one reason and one reason only, which was to facilitate a democratic environment for uh, a political party to get elected and to take over the power. And from day one, he said that he's only going to stay in power for one year. A lot of people did not believe him. A lot of people thought that he was just making empty promises. But he did exactly that. He stayed in power for around 14 months. And during those 14 months, he managed to organize general elections. And uh, that general election was won. Prime Minister at the time was Sadiq al-Mahdi. And he very peacefully handed over the power to the elected government. And he left the political scene completely on his own will. Like nobody had any power over him to do that. That's incredible and inspiring, and it may never be replicated in any country in the world ever again. And Abdurrahman Suwara Dahab passed away late last year, 2018. Yes. And he was memorialized across the Arab press as, you know, an incredible figure who did something. A lot of people up until this day, they cannot even comprehend what he did. As I said, uh, there is there's a lot of, a lot of similarities between what happened then and what is going on in Sudan right now. Uh, because at the moment, as we speak, a lot of people are going out against the government. They have a lot of reasons. And the government has been using unprecedented measures of brute force against them. The death toll, I think, at this point is over 40 or even over 50 people who have been shot or killed under interrogation or so the the situation as we speak in sudan is is getting really worse by the minute and the similarities between what happened what abrahman swarad did in 1985 and between what is going on at the moment is that again this is a popular uprising mostly uncoordinated some people are sort of trying to jump over the bandwagon and sort of take control over the whole thing and claim credit. It's uh, bigger than any leader or party or movement. Yes, uh, that's what I think, at least. And up until this moment, the military, similar to what happened in 1985, until now the military is choosing to stay neutral. So the, the military has not been involved yet on with either sides, either being the government or the people. Um, so some people are saying that maybe this popular uprising that's taking place at, as we speak, uh, might only have, might only actually succeed if some officers from the military decide to take the side of the people. But who knows? The bitter lesson from Egypt and most other countries is, however, that the military should never be trusted. Exactly. And... But again, as we said, we had the bright memory of Suarez Dahab. But we also have all of these bad examples from other countries around in Sudan. So we don't really know what's going to happen. So some people are saying, leave the military completely out of this. And other people are saying the only chance for this to succeed is actually if the military decides to intervene. So unfortunately, that moment of optimism and inspiration didn't last very long uh, because the government which was elected after that uprising and coup was shortly afterwards overthrown in another military coup. Yes. 
So basically, in 1985, that was the beginning of our third short spell of democracy. Third and last short spell of democracy in Sudan. Last so far. Last so far. Wow. So, so again, we had the first couple of years after independence between 56 and 58. And then we had between 64 and 69, around five years. And then we had between 86, when the Sadiq al-Mahdi's government got elected, and 89, when al-Bashir decided to carry out the last successful military coup in Sudan. And I say last successful because since then we had like quite a few failed military coup attempts. Tell me what actually happened. So this coup is the entrance onto the scene of this wonderful man called Omar al-Bashir. So Omar al-Bashir, up until that point, he was a military officer who served in different locations in Sudan. And he was also involved in the civil war that was already going on between the North and the South. So he was a, mili- a military man, basically. He wasn't the highest, he wasn't head of the army or anything? Not at that time, no. He wasn't the highest in the army in general. But he was, I think, the highest ranking officer among the officers who were members of the Muslim Brotherhood or the Islamic movement that was led by Turabi, basically. The coup itself is also very interesting because according to Turabi himself in uh, some of his latest interviews, he mentioned that he did not even know who uh, al-Bashir was. He mentioned that he, he only got to know al-Bashir just a few days, a couple of days maybe, before the actual coup took place. And, and obviously that makes us believe that even al-Bashir himself had no idea what was going on um, because the whole thing was mainly planned by a Turabi's people and it was sort of handed, ready to just be carried out to the military people. Yeah. So in 1989, Hassan al-Turabi, who was a political figure, a former minister of justice, and the leader of the Islamic movement basically decided to instigate a coup. Yes. And as I said, the coup was actually carried out by military officers that were only introduced to Atrabi just a few days before the actual the coup actually took place. So it um, sounds like he basically told his guys, bring me the highest ranked military officer who is a member of our movement. Th- that what he said. So when he was asked about the mechanism he used to choose al-Bashir to be the president of the country, he said the only reason was because al-Bashir was the highest ranking officer. That was literally the only reason he himself mentioned. And there was a very interesting plan at the beginning because the Turabi thought that if they declared that this was a military coup, organized by the Islamic movement, then the rest of the world is not going to support it, especially Sudan's neighboring countries like Egypt and Libya, for example. So part of the plan was for the military officers to basically put every political leader in the prison, including Turabi himself and most of the leaders of the Islamic movement. So everybody was in prison for the fairest few months. So he actually planned a coup that would put him in prison so that nobody would suspect that he was involved. Exactly, exactly. So everybody else in the world, for at least for the first few weeks, they were supposed to not know who was behind this military coup. They only knew that now the the president of the country is a guy by the name Omar al-Bashir, but nobody really was was really supposed to know who was behind him. Uh, But obviously, a few months later, people knew who was behind it. Turabi was let out of prison. Most of his people were let out of prison. And again, the idea was that the military was supposed to hand over the power back to the civilians within a very short period of time. It was supposed to be, some people say two years, some people say three, four years. But now, 30 years later, Al-Bashir is still in power. So now we're getting close to the present day, and I'm going to tie up some of these many threads that we've been discussing. One of them is obviously the economic situation that has led to the massive dissatisfaction with the government. So Sudan has been in economic crisis. The currency, I think, has the third highest rate of inflation in the world, 70%. 10 years ago, the exchange rate was 1 US dollar to 2.38 Sudanese pounds. In mid-December, it reached something like 80 Sudanese pounds to the dollar. And one of the reasons for that is the secession of the South. So when the agreements were made, one of them 
included revenue sharing agreements from the oil because the South has a very large share of the natural resources. Now that the South is having its own civil war after independence, that oil flow has stopped and with it the revenue to the government. But the government is also, or has been until very recently, under economic sanctions. So in the 1990s, the country was host to Osama bin Laden on the invitation of Hassan Durabi, who we've mentioned. And that led to the country being placed on the list of state sponsors of terror and being subjected to sanctions, which have annihilated the economy effectively. Yes, at Turabi during the 1990s, he had a very big project, a very, you could say, about a pan-Islamist project, a worldwide project to, to get all the leaders of all the Islamic, political Islamic movements in the world together under one roof. And, and part of that was, you know, allowing a lot of these people who some of them were on at least some watch lists worldwide by you know intelligence uh, agencies and many of them were wanted criminals in their own countries some of them were also wanted criminals in their own countries and and the intelligence agencies in their own countries were basically looking for them for years and years and had no clue where they were only to find them you know attending a conference in sudan hosted by hassan turabi and that put al-Bashir under a lot of pressure because Turabi's vision was basically to let the military officers run the, the government, the day-to-day running of the government, and for him not to get too involved with that, but for him to you know, be left alone, protected by the government, to do whatever else he wanted to do. But while he was doing that, while he was getting all of these people into Sudan, al-Bashir was getting a lot of phone calls, you know, from all over the world, asking him to, you know, let go of al-Turabi, asking him to capture all of these people visiting Sudan, or being invited by al-Turabi and, you know, send them over to their respective countries and so on and so forth. So al-Bashir, as a president, he was under a lot of pressure because of what al-Turabi was trying to achieve. Um, there is this interesting theory I was discussing with a friend of mine by the name of Khalid al-Fil. He, he has this theory that the military is not just a tool that any thinker or any you know political party or act, a group of activists can just use for their own purposes to carry out military coups. So throughout the history of Sudan, um, it has been, the convention has always been to blame military coups on other political leaders. And, and, and that sort of stems from seeing the military as just a tool to carry out other people's agenda. But Khalid's theory is that, in fact, the military itself should be seen as a political entity. The military officers themselves are not just, you know, angels that always you know have uh, the best interest of the country at heart some of them might have their own political agenda some of them might have you know their own visions and their own ideas and for them to carry out these military coups they also need this popular support that can only be provided through you know established political movements or established political parties that's that's hard to dispute that the Sudanese military is clearly very politicized if it's tried to carry out at least 13 coups in the last 50 years. And these are just the major ones. These are just the ones that we know of. So, so Hassan al-Turabi became very inconvenient. He started off as a man with a vision for the country and was content guiding the military from behind the scenes. But he became inconvenient. He started to bring the ire of the world down upon them by hosting terrorists effectively he caused diplomatic incidents he turned neighboring countries against them and the guy who was in charge of the day-to-day running of the country didn't need any of these headaches exactly uh, al-bashir and turabi had a lot of conflicts between them uh, as we all know that the whole thing lasted the honeymoon between the two men lasted uh, around 10 years uh, that's that's quite long when you consider the fact that they're basically two dictators who are both trying to run the same country well at least from the beginning, I think, I might very well be wrong, but I think the military officers who were in power in front of everybody were sort of just 
complaining under their breath about what a tribe was doing, but they were not sort of openly objecting to what is going on. So for a while, people were, they were sort of okay with what was going on. Uh, but at some point, a tribe sort of tried to do a lot of things. Some of them might have been good things, others might have been bad things. Like, for example, a tribe at some point in the 1990s, he started talking about allowing the political pluralism and allowing other political parties to, you know, actually be able to work and, and be able to organize and, 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 and basically get involved in the political arena of Sudan. So this is despite Omar al-Bashir having banned political parties when he came to power in 1989. So after the military coup, all of the political parties were banned. The, the political life in Sudan was basically mainly the army and the Islamic movement. But uh, very quickly, at some point, for example, a tribe started talking about allowing other parties to participate in public life and to organize and, you know, to be allowed to work. The other people, some people, they say that al-Bashir, for example, they saw it was too soon. Uh, he saw it was too soon and, and, and he was basically sort of trying to convince the tribe to wait a little bit more. Uh, the issue, the, the issue that uh, was the final stroke uh, in 1999, and this is very interesting. Uh, yeah, there was a debate about allowing the, the remote regions of Sudan to elect their own governors. Obviously, up until that point, all of those governors were appointed directly by al-Bashir. And obviously, when al-Bashir appoints somebody, and then a few months or a few years down the line, he wasn't happy with their performance or with anything they say or do. Then Al-Bashir had every right to basically just, you know, ask them to leave and appoint somebody else. Atrabi was trying to convince Al-Bashir that we should actually allow all of these regions to elect their own governance. And he was sort of giving Al-Bashir a lot of compromises, stuff like maybe you can give them a list of five people and then they elect one of the five. So he was sort of trying to work around it. But al-Bashir was adamant, this is too soon, we are going to get to that point, but not now. Uh, at that point, Turabi was the speaker of, of the parliament. So he got to a point where he just told al-Bashir that, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead with, it, with this. I don't care whether you like it or not. And al-Bashir basically just told him, if you actually try to go ahead with this, then I'm just going to use the constitution, I'm going to, use the, I'm going to declare a state of emergency, I'm going to dissolve the parliament, I'm going to put you in prison. And that's exactly what happened because the tribe just went ahead with it. And during the session, during the actual session where they were discussing the motion, Bashir just declared the state of emergency and put the tribe in prison for a while and dissolved the parliament. And obviously, a little bit later, tribe was released from prison and then he formed his own party uh, known as Mutamar al-Shabi until today. And uh, some of the major people in the Islamic movement who um, the, the top students of Turabi himself, some of them, they went with Turabi to the uh, to his new party. Others chose or decided to stay with uh, the rightful leader of the country, al-Bashir. So uh, by highlighting this uh, final ended the relationship between al-Bashir and Turabi, people could see that tribe was trying to do something good by you know allowing you know giving uh, remote regions more control and more power over who uh, their governors are so tribe's personality and tribe's ideas and vision are you know very controversial very complicated to understand and uh, He's an incredibly complex figure. I mean, um, you can tell different stories about the man. A lot of people have changed their minds about the Turabi so many times throughout the years. I mean, up until today, like the guy passed away a few years ago. And during these last few years, a lot of people have changed their minds about him many, many times. So I'm going to try and bring together some of these multiple threads that we've been discussing um, to take us to the present day. We mentioned um, economic sanctions placed on the country, which basically destroyed the economy. And that was uh, largely because Turabi hosted terrorists and got Sudan placed on a list of international sponsors of terror. You also have ICC charges against Omar al-Bashir, which contributed to that. You have the independence of the South, uh, which took most of the country's oil and natural resources with it. 
So throughout the years, the, the, the Sudanese economy was mainly based on um, the cotton exports from Al Jazeera irrigated agriculture scheme until up until the point where oil was discovered around the 1980s. And then at some point when uh, the current government managed to extract the oil with the help of the Chinese government or Chinese companies, the Sudanese economy switched from relying on the cotton exports to relying on oil to the point that I think at some point over 94% of revenue, the Sudanese revenue uh, was based on oil exports. Um, the thing is most of the oil wells are in the south but because the South Sudan is landlocked so uh, the main exportation ports are in eastern Sudan, Port Sudan which is in the north, which in is Sudan in the north. itself. Yes. Uh, so there is a pipeline. There are pipelines between south where the wells are and the Khartoum and the northern parts of the country where the refineries are, and then the port in, in Port Sudan where the oil gets exported to the rest of the world. I would say up until 2011, uh, the Sudanese economy was almost very stable. Uh, the exchange rate was fixed for many years at around 2.6 or 2.7 uh, Sudanese uh, pounds, again, is the dollar. So everybody knew that there is a very, very good chance that in 2011, the South will actually go away, and which meant that uh, most of the oil resources will go away with it. And that's exactly what happened. So basically, in 2011, the uh, Sudanese government lost over 70% of its uh, economic resources just by the fact that the South chose independence. That's, and that's an absolutely staggering amount of money to lose and it shows the, the short-sightedness in failing, completely failing to develop alternative revenue sources, failing to diversify the economy, failing to invest in its own resources. It's what we've mentioned in a previous episode as the the business model of the arab world dig extract ship there is no value added in the arab world there is no development of the human resources it's purely based on exploiting natural resources until they run out and uh, to add to that as well a lot of like part of the one of the reasons of the current uprising uh, a lot of people are asking questions about where all of the oil revenues before 2011 where did all of that money go because they don't see any of it uh, according to them they don't see any of it anywhere in, in sudan anywhere in you know the other sectors of the economy so they're asking a lot of questions and obviously they are accusing all of the main people in the government and uh, the ruling party that they stole that money for themselves basically and of course, one of the answers to where it all go is to the military and to the armed forces, which are today killing their own citizens in the streets. According to the last few years' budgets in Sudan, um, there's no comparison whatsoever between the percentage of the budget that goes to the military and the security forces and the percentage of the budget that goes to, uh, for example, other sectors like health and education. It's absolutely no comparison. So a lot of people are asking questions about where did all of that money go? And obviously based on that, a lot of people are accusing people in the government of stealing that money and uh, using it for their own benefit. So now we're kind of tying up these multiple threads and bringing them all to the present day. You have a political culture in which most of the large parties have been discredited over the years as being led by elites who are out of touch and who have proven themselves in the past to be authoritarian and willing to work with the military to overthrow democracy when it served them. Yes, actually, to add to that point, just a couple of years ago, the National Congress Party arranged something called uh, the National Dialogue, where they invited almost every single political party in Sudan to come and participate in a national dialogue about everything in Sudan, everything to do with politics, with economics, uh, social issues, everything basically. And some, some political movements and parties, they refused to 
to have anything to do with the National Congress Party because of everything we've just been discussing and all the history and everything. Uh, but I would say a lot of other parties, they decided to join the National Dialogue and uh, they managed to come up with uh, some sort of an agreement. And based on that agreement, uh, a lot of people from these parties, they sort of got involved with the government in different executive positions. Uh, so some of them became ministers, some of them became MPs in the House of Parliament, others became heads of other uh, government uh, organizations or agencies and stuff like that. So Omar al-Bashir effectively managed to co-opt a lot of the opposition and incorporate them into his own government. Yes. So uh, coming to the last few years, um, so the, the economic situation started getting worse and worse starting from 2011. And that from that point on, uh, the exchange rate just started collapsing completely after having been fixed at 2.6 or 2.7 for many years. It just started losing the Sudanese pound, started losing its value by the day. In 2013, we saw the very sort of the beginnings of the uprising, and that was to do with certain things, to do with you know specific uh, medications and specific items that people had some concerns about, and people took to the streets in different cities, but mainly in Khartoum, and again they were faced with security forces. And uh, some of the protesters got shot and got killed. Um, people sort of, you know, after a few days, they just went back and the whole thing just went away. So that was 2013. The same thing happened again in 2016. Again, people took to the streets, faced with the brute force. Few people got killed. And then a few days later, people just, you know, decided to stop and, 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 and accept the situation and go back home. This time, I think it is going to be very different. It is already very different. It's uh, a much larger scale. Much larger scale. And uh, to give a sense of um, that economic situation that people are facing, Sudan has, I think, the third highest rate of inflation in the world at 70%. The Sudanese pound previously, the exchange rate with uh, the US dollar was 1 to 2.4. Now a US dollar will get you, I think, about 60 Sudanese pounds. Around that figure, yes, and, and it's getting worse by the day. In mid December, it was it reached eighty. Yes, um, it, so its value plummeted eighty five percent in the year twenty eighteen, yeah. and, and with this, the end of a lot of subsidies because the government is simply too broke to maintain them. Yes, so this government, I think, was going to struggle anyway with or without a popular uprising, just because of how they are managing the economy. And add to that the fact that Omar al-Bashir has been in power for 30 years and he has decided that he's going to run again yes, in 2020. Exactly. And even members of his own party, I believe, have broken ranks and said that this is unacceptable. Yes. So the last general elections, presidential elections that took place in 2015, some major figures in his own party at the time they were 100% against him putting himself forward in those elections. And they publicly mentioned that in different media outlets. And some of them, they got like warnings by the party that they have to stick to the line of the party. Otherwise, they will, you know, be expelled from the party, which is what happened. And so they went away and they formed their own uh, opposition party against al-Bashir. This just happened in 2015. But al-Bashir himself at that time, he is recorded on video, let alone being quoted in newspapers, but he himself being recorded on video many times, many, many, many years ago, saying that this is going to be my last term in office. This is going to be my last term in office. When, when the um, comprehensive peace agreement came into power, uh, came into implementation, some people who were trying to justify for al-Bashir to stay in power, they were telling him that actually after the Sudan, after South Sudan got its, its independence, we now have a completely new country. So you should start counting from scratch. That was 2011. So even with that logic, even with that logic, even if he started counting only from 2011, so he got his first term between 
2011 till 2015 and then his second term from 2015 till next year i think so even with that logic he does not have the right to stay in office another term definitely not even a single minute further his party has now decided that they are going to put him forward for the next elections and obviously in order for them to be able to do that they will have i think to modify their internal constitution first to allow him to become the president of the party for another term and after they do that internally which is they can very easily do because that's their own party they can do whatever they want to do with it but then the the the, the more important step is to modify the constitution of the country uh, but again they do have the mechanical a majority in the house of parliament so again they can pass any motion they want to pass in the house of parliament but obviously for this reason and for all the other reasons that you have just quoted people have got to a point where they have definitely had enough and the scale of the current demonstrations the current uprising is definitely the largest sudan has has seen in the last uh, definitely the last 30 years people have now got to a point where they strongly believe that they cannot go back they have to carry on uh, with what they have started the government is facing peaceful protesters with unprecedented levels of brute force it's very common now that on a daily basis you hear of a couple of people getting uh, killed and others many others getting shot in different parts of their bodies and 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 have to go medical surgeries um and stay in hospital for a while if they're not killed immediately if they're not killed immediately and as i said earlier this is very similar to what happened in 1985 the uprising against the mary uh, because the dynamics of the current situation uh, it seems like the people who are t- taking to the streets can keep on doing this forever but on the other hand the government can also keep on doing on whatever it is doing forever so something has to happen so it's effectively become a protracted stalemate yes so something has to happen um, it's either one of them give up first either people give up first which i don't think is going to happen or the government give up first but i also don't think the government is going to do that anytime soon at least So something else has to happen. There's always the possibility of Bashir losing control of his own party, then so finally deciding to abandon that, it. That is one of the things that people are considering. So it's either him losing control of over his own party. The problem with that is that I don't think people will accept any members of his own party into the political scene anytime soon. So they are all regarded as part of the regime that has led the country to this point. It's not just Al-Bashir himself personally, but it's everybody. Not only actually people from his own party, but in fact, every person, every politician from any other party that is still in, 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 in the same sort of ship with Al-Bashir to this day. Which is most of the big parties. Which is most of the big parties. And, and that is the reason why most of the young people who are taking to the streets nowadays they have definitely lost faith in almost all of the traditional parties so in terms of what people are expecting or sort of waiting to happen it could as you just mentioned that al-bashir could lose control over his own party the military might decide to intervene at some point which will definitely sort of you know change the scales Yeah, a lot of different ways if any people any like high ranking military officers decide to do that also people are sort of expecting maybe a diplomatic intervention from you know western countries for example or from other neighboring countries in the region um, so a lot of things could happen over the next uh, few days but as i said earlier just the economic situation on its own could lead to the collapse of the government without any other factors at all um so yes there is a lot of events still unfolding over the next few days so the situation is still unfolding and i'm following it on twitter on a daily basis so i'm going to put a few handles of some of the accounts which tweet news regularly in the description of this podcast yeah Thank you for joining me Anas and for educating me about the country once more 
and I hope you found it as informative as I did. Thank you for having me. We try to do nuance and depth on the Arab Talent Manual podcast. That's why I tried to take a step back from the events happening today in this episode and look at the historical context. Do let me know what you thought of the balance. And context doesn't mean we should forget what's happening today. People are suffering under decades of oppression and economic mismanagement and going out in massive numbers to attempt to bring down a military dictatorship. Everyone should be paying attention and raising awareness. I'm going to be listing some of my favorite online Sudanese accounts in the description of the podcast who you can follow for the latest news including Yusra Al-Bagir, a journalist who's on the ground and has consistently up-to-date and accurate coverage, Nasreen Malik, a Sudanese writer who you should read everything that she writes, and Khaled Al-Bay, my favorite cartoonist. Oh, and Hatem Al-Ta'i, who has a comprehensive timeline of events on Reddit, as well as many more. Be sure to follow them. And an important note about the podcast. We're privileged to have incredibly knowledgeable guests on the Arab Tyrant Manual, and there's more depth to the stories that we tell than we can possibly fit into an hour-long episode. This conversation you just listened to was originally a two-and-a-half-hour-long recording, and we have to be reasonable, apparently, but the most painful part of this process is seeing how much fascinating stuff ends up on the cutting room floor, because it was too deep or too big a tangent, and it broke the flow of the conversation. But now, I'm delighted to say that we're going to be releasing the extra material from our recordings, This is our first episode after the launch of our Patreon, and we're going to be putting it there, where the people who support us and make this possible can listen to the parts of the discussion that didn't make the cut. The stuff we'll be releasing from this episode is exceptionally rich, and it includes an insight into post-independence political life in Sudan, the four major political powers, more details on a few of the attempted coups, Nimeri's declaration of Sharia law, a detailed discussion of Hasnat Turabi, who is a fascinating figure we mentioned a few times but didn't really do justice, the Darfur crisis, both civil wars, and the negotiations that led to the peace agreement and the South's independence. You can find all of that on patreon.com slash Link is in the episode description. In the meantime, we've been preparing several episodes for you, so you'll be hearing from me again very soon. Thanks to Sana and Khulud for their editing skills, Thanks to all the people who give me advice about this episode, and thanks to you for listening, sharing, and supporting us. The Arab Tyrant Manual is a project of Kawekibi Foundation. سيأتي يمحو الزمان المزيف يا مصطفى يا كتابا من كل قلب تألف ويا زمانا سيأتي يمحو الزمان المزيف